Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And I have been waiting to do this interview for a really long time, actually, since I first met you, Louise, uh, doing Torah study years ago during COVID time. Uh, and I learned that you, you do this incredible project called iCivics.org. And I learned that Justice Sandra Day O'Connor created this organization, basically hired you to be the chief executive officer. You have this amazing background as a lawyer with an MBA, with digital platforms. And, and I just want to start with a quote that's on iCivics website right now. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor said, the practice of democracy is not passed down through the gene pool. It must be taught and learned by each new generation. And all I can say is we need rule of law, human rights, educated citizens. So many Americans don't even vote or they're not even registered to vote. And I just think your work is incredibly important. And before I ask you to talk, I'll just say a few more laudatory things about your organization. It's a high-quality history and civic education you provide to 9 million students annually in 50, all 50 states. You champion civic education as a priority for healthy democracy. Forgive me if I cry. I just feel so passionately about your work. It's incredible. Uh, it's the, your organization has won many awards, including Fast Company's Top 10 Most Innovative Education Companies, EdTech Creator Winner from Unity. Um, you know, we really, really, really have a crisis, and we need to educate people how democracies work and how they don't work is when people give up or they listen to disinformation, you know, they let emotions take over. And, and I just wanted the opportunity, that's why I've been pursuing you, I want to promote your work to my audience because it's so vital and, and your organization deserves all the help. I should also add you have 145,000 educators, uh, you have a coalition of 300 groups with Civics Now, uh, across the, the viewpoint spectrum. Okay, so games, resources, iCivics.org. Louise Dubay, thank you. Welcome to the Influence Continuum. Well, thank you so much, Steve. It was great to know you back then uh, during Torah study where we ask a lot of very hard questions and never answer them. And uh, <laughs> this is a little bit like that, uh, a similar kind of thing. Um, but it's a, it's a pleasure to be with you and I appreciate your interest and your support. It's really important that everybody uh, gets involved in civic education. It's been de-emphasized in our country for right. decades, generations really. And that's what Sandra O'Connor bemoaned. And she uh, thought it was her most important legacy, which is really amazing considering how much she accomplished on the bench and for women everywhere. And we recognize that. And we also recognize that she chose to use her power for this purpose or this purpose of sustaining our country and sustaining our democracy. Um, so we, we do a lot of things um, 
And but at, at the core of what we do is what you mentioned, which is that democracy is not a natural form of governance, right? Mm -hmm. So it would be a lot easier to have some kind of king that's been there for you know millennia, uh, and that's what we had, uh, and we chose to join a system uh, that was created to modulate differences. So uh, democracies are there because we will disagree. Mm -hmm. It's not the idea that we all agree. The idea is that we find a way forward to solve common problems despite the fact that we disagree. And that is just not a natural thing to do. And it requires everybody's voice to be included in the process. And if we only have a system which is dominated by very small minorities, then you don't have a system that works. So uh, unfortunately, uh, in a lot of cases where we have uncontested elections, low voter turnout, uh, you know, a, a lot of different factors that ensure that everybody's voice is not recognized. So that's our theory of change is that you have to educate students, the youngest among us, over decades in order to have them take up the mantle of understanding what the system is about and then getting involved. Yeah, and I would add, have the kids teach their parents and <laughs> all the older you know, people and media people need to learn what civics education is about, in my opinion. Yeah, so what's interesting about what you say is that the research, a very strong research base for when a student comes and talks with their parent about political issues in their house, uh, it sticks much more. There's a much greater impact. That can happen in either of two directions. Either the parents talk with their students or their kids about uh, politics or, and we've seen that in a lot of immigrant families, the students come home talking about what they talked about in class uh, and then talk to their parents about it. And it's a really wonderful way. And that is a way that everybody can get involved if they have, you know, family, multi-generational families. Yep, exactly. So can you go back in time, tell us a little more of your backstory and how you came to even meet Sandra Day O'Connor and be interviewed for this position? Yeah, so I actually, the story starts with my son, Daniel, who's uh, currently uh, in college. So he was in fourth grade at the time. Uh, and Mrs. Brown, who was the, uh, his uh, fourth grade teacher, assigned a nice civics game as homework. And that was during the time that Obama was running. And I, he came home and said, oh, mommy, I have to go play on the computer this game. And I was like, no, this is not a good idea because we want to be doing homework, not playing games. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. It's, it's a homework assignment from Mrs. Brown. I was like, really? What is this? And so he played a game called uh, Win the White House. In that game, you run your own campaign for president. So in all of our games, the student is the center of the action. It's really important that they can relate to the character and to the gameplay. So they, uh, so the student selects their party. They can be uh, Democrat or Republican. They can be 
also a maverick. Uh, so that would be somebody who has some of the issues from one party, but takes up issues from the other party. Uh, and then they run a campaign. So what does that mean to run a campaign? Well, you choose the states in which you want to go and be uh, and make an appearance, fundraise. Uh, you choose, you know, press coverage and what events you do. You really run a campaign over several, several weeks. And at the end, you win or you lose. Now, the map is not necessarily representative. We, we vary it up. But the, the election issues, the topic or the platform is based on the Republican and Democratic Party platforms. So we try to represent them as fairly as we can. And students choose and they can replay the game. All of our games are free and can be played without even registering uh, on acevix.org. And so please, if you have children, grandchildren, you can go and play and have and see what it's like. Our One of our most popular game is called Do I Have a Right? In which you run your own uh, constitutional uh, law firm and you buy lawyers essentially uh, to deal with specific constitutional issues. And by, through that, you learn about the Bill of Rights. Uh, we even have support in Spanish for English language learners. And so there, there's just a lot of resource there for you easily accessible. Uh, and they're fun and, and kids love them. That's incredible. So it was your son who made you aware of iCivics.org in the beginning. Yes, it was Daniel. And, um, and then after that was several years passed. Uh, I, but I, the interesting thing about that is I'd been in education technology for maybe 20 years. <laughs> uh, so a long time. And I had had to bribe my kids to try my products. And in this case, he wanted to keep doing it. And he came out of that experience playing when the White House to, to say, mom, all of school should be like iCivics. Mm. And that was really uh, a little bit of a shock. <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. I started paying attention to iCivics. And then, as I said, several years went by. And then I met the outgoing executive director, Jeff Curley, also a Massachusetts resident, uh, who said, well, I'm leaving, I'm going back to school and we need a replacement, we can't find the right person. I was like, no, I live in Boston. I, the organization was based in DC at mm -hmm. the time. Yep. And they decided that uh, to allow me to move it to Massachusetts if I wanted to. Uh, and that's when I met Sandra Day O'Connor and we went out to dinner with her in DC. And uh, it was kind of an experience because she, you know, I. I People kept coming up to her and asking her to sign something and talking to her. And it, you couldn't get it in a word edgewise. It was, you know, just um, a lot of uh, interruptions. Yeah. And she told me a, a few different things that were really resonated with me at the time during that dinner, including uh, that she said that it's great for kids to know, but they must do. Um, and I thought that was, you know, this uh, might be controversial at some points. It's, it wasn't then. Uh, and she also said that her main goal was that we be in all 50 states, which we subsequently uh, achieved. So I was proud to play a role in her legacy. And she was involved with us for many years. I traveled with her for two, two and a half years, maybe after I was hired in 2014. And then, uh, then you know, the disease, the Alzheimer's disease really got her. And mm. unfortunately, we lost her leadership. Mm. Yeah, but she's an amazing woman, just incredible human being. And 
she chose to retire, I, uh, if I understand the, the story, and then went on several years later to create iCivics. So she wasn't done with public service. I think that the important thing, uh, a lot of people remember Sandra O'Connor for different reasons, right? Um, but the important thing about her character was that she saw herself as a civil servant. She worked for the country, for people, her entire life. And so she stayed, served in the state legislature uh, for many, many years. And, and she, she saw the world that way. And I think that's a perspective that's missing these days. Those, I, th I think that's deeply related to her jurisprudence and how realistic and pragmatist she was, uh, because uh, that's the real world of politicians. But uh, in any event, she retired in 2006 from the Supreme Court because her husband had Alzheimer's and she wanted to devote more time to him. Uh, and then subsequently, unfortunately, her husband uh, ended up falling in love with somebody else at the Alzheimer's facility, but she kept visiting him anyway, mm. all the time. And she worked on iCivics as her legacy starting back then, but it took several years for them to figure out like, how are they gonna do it? What were they gonna do? And she was helped a lot by her clerks, her former clerks, and her just a cadre of uh, judges and women judges in particular. Uh, and then they got it off the ground. We were incorporated in 2009. Mm -hmm. And so we've been around for a little while and we've built quite a large following uh, since then. And you are you went to law school, so you know the law, right? Am I kind yeah, of? I went to, uh, yeah, I went to McGill Law, um, but that's so long ago. Uh, I practiced for a few years and uh, then founded an alternative to incarceration program um, and worked in the court system uh, at that time as well. Uh, it really became passionate about social change, meaning that there's social entrepreneurship that can help get us to better outcomes, that is to solve problems. And, and that's what I think I've been doing in all different ways. So through education, through students, working for the next generation and improving a kind of education system that we can provide through technology or through joining hands or through improving uh, the quality of civic education in this country. At this point, um, iCivics is more than just a provider of information or materials. We began, I think, in um, uh, a few years ago, maybe five years ago or six years ago, uh, to shape what we do based on the needs in the country. In other words, uh, yes, we need to give the right tools and the fun tools to educators, but we also need to get more time in the classroom or else it won't make any difference. Uh -huh. So we have now a six-person policy team, and all they do is advocate for better policies to support civic education uh, at the national and at the state level. Uh, as it won't be much of a surprise to anyone, the national level is a difficult place to work right now. Uh, so there's not much, uh, it's not a very productive legislative body. But at the state level, we've had quite a bit of success. There's Great. advances that are being made in many states. So I'll cite New Hampshire as one place, Missouri. Uh, we have uh, progress, which I think will be in Alaska. 
there's a new commission in uh, Maine. Uh, we've had quite a bit of success here in Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts has been a leader in both requiring civics projects of all middle and high school students, and then allocating funding to train educators and support the implementation of those civics projects in districts all over. And that those state appropriations have gone up from uh, around a million to now $2.5 million. It's not a lot of money for a state like Massachusetts, but it is more than many other states are doing. And it's been tremendously helpful. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah, and people grow up one place and move to another place. And if they've had this education, they bring it with them. And they can also, you know, make sure there's a robust, you know, uh, entity in their new state and such. So really, I want you to use this as a platform to say what you think the public needs to, to hear and learn and understand because there's just so much concern about uh, this year and the elections globally, not just in the U.S., but other democracies seem to be challenged. Yeah, I think, I think partly um, there's a lot of things that need to happen. Uh, one of them is that uh, we have narrowed over the last maybe 50 years, we've narrowed the purpose of education uh, to be primarily to find a job. There are several problems with that. And I understand that parents want their kids to be uh, fulfilled and to earn money. And I, you know, obviously everybody wants that. I have kids. I want that for them too. But they also are going to be part of our society. And I think if you've ever, if you've flown an airline in the past few years, um, it's pretty clear that we need to be able to resolve problems uh, and that we need to be able to get along and get things done together, right? If you work on a large global team or a small uh, national team here in the U.S., you're going to need to build ways to talk to people who are different than you and to share and to be able to listen to others, to find evidence, to be able to support what you're saying, uh, and to be able to understand that the common good is something different than what's only good for me. Right. So those are the kinds of things that are taught in civics um, about, you know, how we solve these problems that are complicated, big, and they uh, touch everyone. So we want our kids to be the kind of neighbors that, and for the other guys, kids to be the kind of neighbors you want to live with. So that, that's partly what civics will deliver. Uh, so that's, that's one thing. It's like education is, yes, about getting a job. Yes, about getting skills, but it is also about being able to live in a society that's diverse and complex the way that ours is. And underpinning so that, Louise, is values, like that yeah. life isn't just money or how many followers you have on social media. It's real relationships and treating other people with respect. I love what you said about active listening you know, to really listen that pe other people may have different points of view and that may be different than yours, but they're their points of view and to be able to understand at least where they're coming from, not necessarily agree with it, but understand that going forward, we need a bigger tent. Right. Yeah, it's exactly. I think um, particularly in a country like ours, right? So we just have to go back to the beginning uh, that 
this is not a country that was founded on ethnicity. It's not a country that was founded in religion. That's very different than other democracies. It is the longest surviving uh, democracy of its kind, um, and it's self-government. So a lot has been devolved to the citizens. Uh, the role of informal leaders or community leaders in American life is quite substantial. So all of those factors make uh, the United States of America a different kind of place that requires more investment in young people or in citizens to be able to make it work. So that's, that's where you, you start, right? It, really what we are is a set of values like you talked about that are reflected in our laws and our institutions. Now, we're at a difficult point now where our institutions don't necessarily reflect our values or the values they were imbued with. So we have these values common, you know, that are uh, clearly embodied in the preamble and in the Declaration of Independence, but those things may not translate all the time to formal institutions now. Some of our institutions are actually not working. People don't have trust in them. Now, the solution to that is not to dismantle those institutions, right? It is to force them to work. And that's the difficulty that I hope people grasp is that the other side of this is not authoritarian regimes or a uh, anarchy. It is that we have a system that could work if we invest in it and if we rebuild those bonds of trust. Now, a lot of what we're dealing with is the consequence of uh, a very different technological landscape that we had before, in addition to many other factors. And that's, in those cases, when you recognize the issues and what's changed, you then have to address the problems. So that breaking that logjam so that people see that there is benefit in investing in their system and making it work is, I think, the challenge we have to overcome. Right. You know, what you just said, I want to just like do a short video clip and like get someone to like put it on every TV in every station over and over again. It's just so critical. It's like you, you, you don't want authoritarianism. You don't want anarchy. It's going to take work. And the way that democracy works is you roll up your sleeves, you do what you can, and you need to force change, but not through violence, not through threats, not through un unlawful means, but voting and getting involved with civics. Yeah, I think um, a lot of what is happening now is that we may, we're in danger of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There is a sense that this country, this democracy is not working. And that is, as you said, not a, a sense that is only shared in the United States, it's shared globally. And it, it's got many reasons uh, and many factors, and they're different in different places. But let's, but just acknowledge that, that is, you know, a real tension that everybody faces. And I think we forget, though, that there are also benefits, and many of those we take for granted. And that is uh, um, where I have a caution 
when I see young people, like we know that the statistics of uh, young people in democracy right now are really poor. So young people, there's only about 30% that think it's essential to live in a democracy. Yeah, 16% are, are proud to be an American. There's just, it, it's dismal, those numbers. And it's really painful to see. And I think that part of this is a reflection of what is really, you know, a real problem. And part of it is that we don't see the other side. We're just talking about what's not working, not about what is working. And I think what you, you and I probably would agree on is that democracy is the only system in which you get a voice. And that is what young people want. This, I think, is clear. They want a voice. They want more of a voice. And they want to break these lock jams, but they're not. Um, and, but you have to understand that in a system that isn't a democracy, then you're not going to see that. So that that's the that's we need to reinforce that. We need to reinforce the basic understanding of what we're talking about and how in some cases it actually is working. There, there is evidence for the contrary as well. And if more people get involved, more will work. So. That's that's our right, case. but I also I, I I I hope you don't mind me being a little bit political and just saying in Russia, if you want to say I don't think what's happening in Ukraine is good, you get sent to jail or Siberia, and you you know you're you're a, a presidential candidate, you get sent off to Siberia. You don't they, because Putin doesn't want it to be challenged. He wants to be ruler and king. But I think American young people are so you know, spending so much time on social media and watching, you know, short attention span things, and they take, as you said, they take it for granted that we can we can walk down the street and we can vote and we can speak out against the president and we can like hold people accountable when they do things that are wrong here and the system is broken but it's better than almost everywhere else on the planet at the moment yeah i think i think the de democratic systems are never perfect and they never have been and they never will be and it, it, this is the difficulty in it when the system is more broken it's just a hard argument to make because Okay, it's not working, but it is working somewhat. And you have to look at it as a more perfect union, help create a more perfect union. But sometimes if you want to see just a very simple yes or no choice, then you're not going to grasp everything that's going on, all the factors and the fact that, yeah, uh, it, it may not be perfect, uh, but it does offer you a great deal more freedom than you would have otherwise. And that's, I think people say, oh, we're not free. We, there's all these limits. There always have been. There always will be. And you have to look at a greater arc or a longer term history, which, you know, honestly, we're not very good at. We, we have, I don't know if you uh, know these statistics, but we, are the, we have the worst performance for student achievement on civics and history. History by far the worst. And so, you know, that's one thing. Americans don't have that base of history from which to draw on. You can't 
really answer these questions about whether it's a good or bad system unless you look at the context. And so that's what I think we need to do. I don't know, but when I'm an old fogey, I'm 69, but I remember learning, you know, American history and like learning about this stuff. So it's in it's in my, you know, brain stem whatever, my brain cells, but a lot of people are just like they're interested, they've just been distracted, whether it's video games or viral media that is not fulfilling in a real way. And what I, my argument as a therapist to people is what really makes people fulfilled is meaningful relationships and meaningful work that matters. When people are on their deathbed, they don't go, I wish I earned more money. They're like, I wish I spent more time with my family, or I wish I, instead of pursuing that extra nice car that I did, you know, I went and used that money, went to a, a, another part of the country or another, another country and helped them build a well, or, you know, did something that really changed people's lives. That's what really m fulfills people in my experience. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. I also see that a lot of young people understand that. I think they, the other side of it was we haven't done a great job at how we teach history or how we teach civics. So that's the, that's the two-sider, you know. And the school systems, uh, the structures of them are not incredibly inclusive of student voice or uh, their needs and desires or their voices. So there's a little bit of both, but it's really quite, um, um, we need to do something because if we don't, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's going to be really hard to sustain this democracy. Yeah. And I, 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 I hope it's okay that I say this, but there are so many young people being homeschooled and they're not being taught history, mathematics, they're not being taught science, they're not being encouraged as a woman that they can like grow up and have a career. Like they're, they're kind of being in, indoctrinated into this very, you know, uh, regressive kind of, you know, worldview, at least that's my perception. What do you think? Well, it, it's, um, I think it's hard to know. Uh, so there's definitely a huge growth in the homeschooling movement. It's still a very small percentage of the overall number of, uh, of uh, students in the country. But we don't really know because there's no regulation in some places. Some, some places or some states are a little bit better about understanding who's doing what and keeping in touch. Uh, most homeschoolers have a relationship with their schools. But uh, it is a growing movement, and I, we, we uh, in the civic education movement want to make sure that homeschoolers and those who are outside of public uh, schools or public charter schools systems uh, have a relationship with the civic education movement because it's really everyone. So it's not, it's not one type of kid. It's not one, another type of kid. It's going to take every kid. And, and right now, there's not the structure to do that because the states mandate what uh, education is provided through the standards, and then they test uh, for math and ELA, but there's no testing for social studies or civics, or at least very little of it. 
And so it's very hard to know whether those students who are outside of the formal structures are getting or not getting. Hmm. So it goes from middle school to high school, your curriculum, or does it start earlier than middle school? No, it starts elementary. There's some okay. pretty basic assumptions about how you form a group, how you listen to other people. Please share that. Ensure. Like, assume that we have listeners who've had no civics education. Like, what what is like 101? Yeah, it's really um, uh, uh, starts very simply. So what's a group? Uh, how do you exercise your voice in a group? How do you make rules? How do you ensure that you listen to somebody else to have disagreement. Those are all the basic values that we start with very early on. We just came out uh, in October with a new series called Well-Versed, which I really loved. It's a partnership we did with Nickelodeon. And there are a series of videos with songs, very engaging songs about the basics of civics. Some of them are all the way to age two, <laughs> which is amazing uh, to, you know, just very young ages, nine or 10. And the songs are really catchy and they're on the iCivics website. Again, everything we do is free and you can go and tap them. So that's where we start. And then we go to support, uh, you know, uh, our system of education is every state has their own state standards. And so we adapt it to every state standards. Uh, and they are about the formal structures of government, uh, the philosophical roots of our government, so foundations of government. So we would study Locke's and Hobbes and those kinds of philosophers. We then study the court system, the judicial branch, the executive branch, um, and the legislative branch. We then uh, run through the specific topics and all of American history. We start in eighth grade and we're now going to build modern American or US history. And so those are also part, because the relationship between history and civics is incredibly tight. But you wanna teach history so that it supports civic engagement later on. So you wanna know what your role is sure. so that you understand what to do for the future as opposed to you learn American history for you know what happened uh, 200 years ago. So. Uh, so that's the, the program in elementary school. Then uh, the middle school is mostly about uh, structures uh, and issues related at the cornerstone between history and civics. And then in high school, uh, we support just uh, uh, more uh, international issues related to government, government structures, democracies versus other types, forms of government, um, and, uh, and many other uh, more relationships with the today's issues. So within the context of solving broader problems like, for example, water rights. So in, in a state where there are conflicts around water rights, who's, who has jurisdiction over that? Uh, what's the history of those conflicts? How do you find common ground around those? Who, has, uh, who actually gets to decide? How do groups participate? That would be the kind of topic and investigation we might do at a high school level. I don't know. I think most citizens need this, not just students <laughs> in 
yeah, in public yeah. education. I'm serious. I think we need to like what? Do you know what the numbers are of how many um, of the population of America are actually registered voters who vote? Yeah, uh, it's very low. I mean, particularly low for young people. It's like uh, in the the twenties. It varies. Uh, higher in college towns and lower in uh, non-college brown towns. That's that's a real concern. Um, so you know, in the twenties, in many places. So. Uh, that's a problem. Uh, we have uh, research that shows that if you have a good, high-quality civic education, you're mo more, much more likely to vote. So that's good. Uh, so, but I agree with you. Uh, we've missed it for many decades, and lots of adults uh, would need to know it. The difficulty is how to reach adults without speaking to the people who already are convinced. I think it's the same problem we have on many issues, political issues that you know, you're often preaching to the converted yeah. as opposed to reaching the population that you need. We tried, uh, we did a small pilot once uh, trying to reach uh, immigrant um, in, in um, just coming uh, to the country for the first time. It's this is a tough population. They have a lot of other things on their mind. And it's really hard to find scaled ways to distribute this content. Obviously, one clear way is through libraries, public libraries. And that, I think, is a really strong avenue is if, if people are interested in getting more civic education to people directly. I think public libraries are probably a really good bet. Yeah, and, and inviting speakers uh, at public libraries, I would imagine, would be a really good thing, too. Um, I I I just really want anyone listening to this to percolate on this project because I think the future hope is to reach everyone and say you can make the world you want it to be but it has to be based on moving towards a solution not further polarization, not through demonizing other people who, who uh, have different thoughts and different uh, opinions than you do. And as you were talking, did, have you ever heard of Braver Angels? Yes, yes, of course. There, there's a whole field of um, bridging, they call it bridging field, and that's their part of it. And I'm a member of that. And just to, for my yep. listeners to say they get... People who are Republicans and Democrats in a room to listen to each other in a structured way where people are actually listening to each other and getting to know each other and looking for commonalities. Oh, you're a parent. I'm a parent, too. Oh, you lost a loved one. when Tragically, I did also. Let's share the stories to find that, the, the glue of the human experience that can bridge these things. Yeah, I think it's very uh, important that there's a lot of great work being done in that field uh, across uh, all states. And I think what's important about that is that at the end of those conversations, people think they're part of one community, right. not two communities. Right. Like we are all Americans. We are all human beings. And uh, we can not see the other as some kind of enemy, but just somebody to work with. And you may not agree with everything that they think. And I think right. this is true in many communities. We think of this as a problem that's, you know, dominated by one party or another. But 
it really is like I see it in my community and it's really since COVID, the, the situation or the tensions have escalated tremendously and people are talking to each other in very disrespectful ways. And I think we need to go back to the drawing board about that because like, you wouldn't talk that way if you weren't on social media. You wouldn't do that. Right. And that's really, um, yeah, really frightening. Uh, yeah, so you know my thing is brainwashing and mind control, and I had my own radicalization experience, and I see online radicalization as the main tool, and by foreign actors as well as local uh, actors who want to destroy the government or they want uh, fossil fuel you know, promotion. They want to put out disinformation about global climate change and such. So for me, um, I've, I, 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 I live and breathe this. That's why I went and did my doctoral dissertation because uh, I realized the law doesn't have a clear scientific way to measure undue influence or authoritarian influence. And one of my professors at the Harvard Medical School Forensic Think Tank, uh, the program in Psychiatry and the Law, said, you need to get a PhD and you need to do a quantitative study on your model and I'll supervise your research, but you got to go do it. And I'm like, I'm too old. And he's like, I'm older than you. Do you want to do it or not? <laughs> so I did it. But it, there, there are ways, and I think we all need to protect our minds from being unduly influenced by people who act like our friends or act like you know they're part of our in-group, and they're not. They just want to create yeah. chaos and distrust. Yeah, I, I love your work. I think it's very uh, interesting and important. It, it, um, we refer to civic education as being the study of three things. One is knowledge, so I referred to the kinds of knowledge that, that we cover in elementary, middle, and high school. Uh, and then there's a set of skills, and those skills are the ones that you just talked about. Um, and then there's a, a disposition or the engagement, like, I'm going to get involved. So those are, that's the combination of those three things. But in the skills part, the one I haven't talked about as much, is this idea that I am a critical independent thinker. And I think that's what parents want for their kids. They want to know that they are not being influenced by educators, like educators are being accused of wanting to brainwash kids. Mm. I think most of the times the educators I know are not interested in that. Uh, they're barely able to get through their state standards list. But it is very important that educators are committed to that. They're committed to teaching a way of reasoning. And that's what I learned in law school. That's how you think but it's, you're not giving them the answer. The way we believe this is best done is, and this is gonna take us back to where we started, Steve. That's it's great. about questions. It really is about formulating incredibly hard questions to answer so that students are forced to look for evidence, they're forced to think for themselves and come up with answers. Now, there, there, oftentimes there are no right answers in this. Like, you know, what is the, uh, solution to a wa water shortage. There is no one solution, but there is a set of criteria, research, history that need to be presented before we can even agree to something, right? And it really is whatever the parties agree to, that's the answer. But 
I think it's important for parents to know that that set of critical thinking and thinking skills is important. And that is why recently we've invested more and we're developing a huge program on uh, civic online reasoning and the ability to detect mis and disinformation. So uh, this, what we call digital literacy uh, or information literacy, be able to see, okay, what's truth? What, how, how do you detect this? And it's not gonna be by doing a checklist of 10 different things that you're gonna check for uh, to see, you know, is it true? Who wrote it? Blah, blah, blah. It is building that fact-checking intuition. Mm. So Sam Weinberg, who's a colleague of ours, who's somebody we have a partnership with. He's a professor at Stanford, and he has built a set of research uh, trying to compare freshmen at Stanford to, uh, not only at Stanford, but uh, freshman students uh, in fancy schools to fact checkers at uh, leading journalistic institutions. And the difference is really about whether you have that intuition of how to detect whether something is true or not. And uh, a lot of it has to do with the source, but taking that lateral reading as he calls it, and we are able to teach that in six hours or less. And that is, I think now, a huge skill of uh, civic education that really wasn't as important before. We have a digital democracy today mm -hmm. and we have to catch up with the times. But yep. yeah, this is very much how we link our work with yours very directly. Yeah, it's, I wanna take that and I can only quote Daniel Kahneman who won a Nobel Prize for Thinking Fast and Slow and I just read his most recent book, Noise, but he basically said, Get the data first, then let your intuition get involved. Because if you start with an intuition, you're looking and you're going to look for confirmation bias and you don't get the right. best results. So look at the right. data, then you check in with your intuition. And that's the best way right. to go. Right, right, right. Uh, the intuition I was talking about is the intuition of a fact checker. Ah. Go look at the source. Who's, who's telling you this is a good idea? Right. Uh, that's the first thing to, say, <laughs> to know. Yeah, that's the agenda. I actually remember when I first went to college, I took a uh, political theory course and we brought in the newspapers and we analyzed what is the, you know, what's the headline? What's the actual facts? What's the biases? Like I had that orientation, you know, in the 70s and it's really served me. Even though I did go down a rabbit hole for two and a half years, I did resurface. I went, no, I don't want to follow Chinese communist brainwashing authoritarianism. No, 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 no. That's not who I really am. So there was like life after cult for me. But I just think what you're doing is so incredibly important and valuable. So opine if you have media people like major media people, TV, we talked about fact checkers, but like media people, what do you want them to learn or what frames would help them in terms of giving news to the public? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh, very simple. It We are at a stage where we have this, conception of, we, we know that our system is not working and we have two paths before us. 
Either we let it uh, crumble or we invest in the system. And I think that a lot of Americans feel very strongly about the system. So many good people in this country. And if that's the case, then we need to invest in young people. I don't think there's any other path that achieves the scale that we need. And to do that, we need to make civic education a priority. And that doesn't mean only facts. It doesn't mean only classes. It means connecting young people with their the community problems all over. It doesn't need to be political uh, as in partisan. It needs to be how is it that we're going to live in community together here in my community today? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, based on a set of knowledge, a set of skills, and a set of dispositions to get involved. And, and in order to do that, it's going to take a major effort on the part of state legislatures, on the part of parents demanding this, and on the parts of just regular ordinary citizens, which is the highest honor, and uh, to get to, to push for that and to think that this is really important. There are a lot of people in this country who think this is important. We've done a lot of polling and we get uh, percentages upwards of seven of 80% support across Democrats and Republicans. So people agree about it, but they don't necessarily make it a priority. And at this stage, given where we are uh, in the country, but also across democracies in the world, we need to double down and get more serious about making this a priority for the country. So, and I, we're there, we've got, you know, as I said, 9 million students a year, we've got the scale, we've got 350 organizations across the political spectrum in our Civics Now Coalition, CIVXNOW.org. Yep. And those folks are ready to take action. We are doing things every day to try to promote new policies, to try to create a movement and to create momentum. And we just need help. Yes, helpicivics.org. You know, Louise Dubé. I, I, I come back to Sandra Day O'Connor and just, as you said, she devoted her life to civil service. And for me, that's such a different frame than the wolf on Wall Street and greed, 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 you know, whoever has more toys wins and that kind of selfish you know, the Ayn Rand, you know, selfishness is good and, and, and altruism is evil. It's like, what kind of nonsense is the, are people believing? Because that's not how the human species has thrived. It's through cooperation and realizing we're in the same boat. We're on the same yeah, planet. I, mean, I think uh, 100%, I think young people understand that. I think of... Uh, Of all the generations, uh, young people are definitely big believer in that. And I think I hear that all the time, that that word community um, uh, among uh, young people. So I think we just need to harness that passion and and give them the tools. It's just not fair to say, okay, you here, we created all these problems. Here you go. They're yours now. Have fun. Uh, You know, I think it's our uh, generation's duty to to educate uh, young people about the system that has worked for 250 years almost. Right. Uh, and then uh, from there, uh, you know, they, they will have to solve a lot of these problems, these very complicated, difficult problems. Yep. But we yep. have to give them a chance and we have to harness it and we have to invest. Yeah. And that's, that's what yeah. we're trying to do. 
Yeah, and and encourage a love of learning, and not you know mm-hmm. not just learning specific facts and factoids, but a love of learning. I I did a, a an interview with Monica Parker on her book on wonder, and it, it was you know develop a curious practice where you're just looking at how incredible life is and nature is and how amazing people are actually and have that frame in your mind rather than doom and gloom and fear and disgust and hatred which is just so energy energy draining for and and I've, I I have friends who've left neo-nazi extremist groups and they were like hating all the time was extremely draining it just wasn't yeah, fun I, I hope I hope that some people in America or in the United States get tired of hating because I think we've, we've, we've had a lot of that and I think enough already. Uh, I, I wish that uh, schooling were more aligned with that uh, purpose, which is to have a love of learning because that's really, in a society as complex as ours, uh, it is just is very different with the kind of skills that you need in order to survive or to thrive. And we all like want, as parents, we all want our kids to thrive and to love learning is really a, a hugely important part of that. And that's what we hope we are doing. Uh, and I, I love it when kids come back and say, oh, you taught us this, but you know, I really was wondering about that. And how does that apply to this? You know, that, that's really what you want to look for. Yep. You, you want to look for them to come back with more questions. That, that's yeah, and yeah, you want right them on. to uh, reach out to others and you know influence their peers and they like role models amongst young yes. people. Yes, yes, it's really 100%. great. So as we're wrapping up, I mean, thank you, thank you, thank you for the incredible work that you're doing, and I really do believe it's it's the most important thing that we need to do to help uh, people rally and not fall into the doom and gloom or i'm checking out i'm gonna do you know binge watch movies or video games because everything's too messed up it's like no let's pull it together and lift each other up and make the world a better place yeah uh, you and sandra day o'connor uh i i'll just uh end and it, i'll just say that that uh even if you do it just because it's just the better alternative, right? You can go into gloom and doom, but if you go and try, even if you don't succeed, you might feel better about yourself anyway. So that's my uh, realist uh, point of view. it's, It's just a better way to live. So let's all try. I I really want to lift up your work, and I hope a lot of people check it out and go to their local school boards and say, hey, do we have this happening in our school? Because I want my kid to be exposed to this and, you know, you know, follow yeah. the guidance that you're so ably offering to uh, wow. millions of people. Thank you. Thank you so much. If uh, On Civics Now, uh, which is civxnow.org, we have a state-by-state map as to what the legislative environment is for that state uh, and what folks should advocate for. So if people are interested in that, that's our 
um, in a different state than Massachusetts, then they should take a look. Uh, and But as you point out, the most direct action is to speak to your educators and to speak to your school board uh, or to write to the school board and to your superintendent to say, uh, is are we well, are my students uh, well supported with quality civic education materials in my school? Yeah, exactly. So um, continued success. See you soon. And um, thank you. And uh, I just really, really, really want to feel optimistic about the next phase of America's history and, for that matter, other countries that are having uh, elections. We have to be, you know, the best role models we can for, you know, getting out of this dysfunction that's afflicted us. So thank you, thank you, and we'll talk soon. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for for showcasing this work, and I really appreciate your support. Yeah, a thousand percent. And in addition to the podcast, a lot of people listen on Apple, Spotify, and all that. We'll put the video on a blog on my freedomofmind.com website if they want to see us talking to each other. We get to put the links to your organizations, and you'll go over the draft and add whatever else you'd like to. So thank you, Louise. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump in that order. These books are a culmination of 45 plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.